Welcome to The Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Antigonus, the One-Eyed. Welcome to the Alexander's Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great, from Perdiccas to Cleopatra the Seventh. My name is Dustin, and I'm Meredith. Um, how you doing, Meredith? Pretty good. How are you doing? Not bad at all. Oh, oh, a couple of weeks ago, we went to the Blair Witch screening, Burkittsville, Maryland. Parts of it were filmed there, so we went to the cemetery. Or near to the cemetery where they filmed it, and they did like a open air screening. There we met one of the co-hosts of Guide to the Unknown, one of my favorite podcasts, the renowned Will Rogers, and we had a I don't know, it's like a celebrity meeting with me. I mean, Meredith, how like on a scale of one to dweeb, how much of a like fanboy was I? I think you handled yourself very well. Yeah, it was awesome, and yeah, had a great time. Will was awesome. Wish Kristen could have been there. We could have met her too, but that's okay. Had a great time. What else, what else, what else we got, Meredith? I went home for my mother's birthday, and on the morning of departure, discovered that my car needed a new battery and a new starter, so Mm. yeah, through a little car Olympics, we got me back up here. The car stayed behind in North Carolina, and now the car's back, and it has a new starter and a new battery. And I'm happy to say it started the other day. So that's all I've got. (laughs) You know, it's like we're always rolling the dice. Every time we go out to that car, we take it for granted. Like, what if it doesn't start? Well, you know, like I said, like... Well, really, with any car. Yeah. You know, like I said with your parents, I'm like, if y'all wanted to spend some extra time with her, you didn't have to destroy your car. You could have just asked. Could have given me a heads up. I would have at least taken my work laptop down to North Carolina. Yeah. Um, I got a full-time job now. Yeah. Woo! I am... an employed adult. I'm an employed adult doing adult things, finally, at the ripe old age of 38. It's a great full-time job. I'm a Latin teacher, which is not surprising considering that I... Got my PhD in ancient Mediterranean studies. Really excited to start influencing young minds. It's a scary thought. It is a scary thought. But before we begin, we want to point you into the direction of another great podcast. A group of guys who have a special place in my heart because they cover the Goths and the Merovingian Franks, but have the bold endeavor of taking you throughout the entirety of European history. It's Quest for Power! We are Quest for Power, and for some reason, we took it upon ourselves to rank all the European monarchs from the crumbling remains of Rome to the trenches of World War I. We are your devastators of mediocre lords. I'm Scott. And I'm Michael. And I hope you have an appetite for brutal bloodbaths, shocking betrayals, and horrible decisions. Because there is plenty of it, and a whole lot more. Knowledge is power, so join us in our quest for power. And with that said, you ready to jump in? Yeah. Antigonus the One-Eyed, the big bear himself, one of the people I've been looking forward to the most. This is a big one. We've actually got a lot, a lot of information about this guy. 
I can tell you now, Meredith, if there was a certain person doing a podcast and trying to hammer out the script for this while working the first two weeks at his full-time job, that person might give you a condensed script of 40 pages. I thought you said it was 30 pages. And I was wrong. (laughs) So, how about dim apples? Yeah. So, that is to say, dear listeners, this may be a two-parter. Because I'm going to have to take Meredith to the mall to get ice cream at some point. So (laughs) So let's jump into it. Antigonus the One-Eyed, what a guy. Meredith, this might be one of our most important episodes yet for many reasons. I won't spoil it up front, but we're going to find out that this Antigonus serves as a turning point for the history of the entire Hellenistic world. Furthermore, although we are always at the mercy of our very meager sources... Antigonus was such an influential and important dude that we have a lot of information, not just about his career, but also about him as a person. And that brings me to my next point. Dear listeners, we are well aware here at the old standard, a lot of our episodes and our subjects overlap with each other. I mean, Meredith, how many times did we tell the story about the partition of Babylon and that dingus Maligar, right? A lot, but I also don't really remember any of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, such is the same with our friend today, the big bear, scary Santa Claus himself, Antigonus. Yeah, he's been with us from almost day one, back when we first gave Perticus the metaphorical finger. So, we're well aware... Take two. So, we... Don't you roll your eyes. So, we are well... Don't shake your head and roll your eyes. You keep adding to it. There you go. So, we are well acquainted with the career and exploits for much of Antigonus's career yeah yeah exactly i was trying to do do this quickly so quickly i didn't even edit this so yeah so i'm going to be brave today and try not to spend too much time going into detail on some of the things that antigonus did in the first 10 years or so after alexander died because we've already covered it over and over but i will make some cursory references when necessary to help stitch together the sequence of events i'll refer our dear listeners to previous episodes when appropriate, especially the episodes on our certified best boy and precious one, Eumenes. So, let's jump in. As a special note for this episode, we'll be relying on a particularly awesome book, Antigonus the One-Eyed and the Creation of the Hellenistic State, written in 1990 by Richard Billows. Anyway, it's an awesome book, highly recommend it, and it's going to be my principal guide for us today. We'll start with the etymology. As for the etymology of Antigonus's name, it's kind of similar to our old friend Antipater. Antigonus seems to be a compound of two words, anti meaning against or comparable to, and gonos meaning offspring, lineage, uh, or begetting. Thus, we can get something like worthy of his family, or by implication similar to Antipater, it'd be like or worthy of his father. Now, Meredith, Antigonus is a bona fide Greek name. Do you know any other appearance of this name in Greek literature, possibly in a feminine form? Yes, Antigone. Bingo, Antigone, the titular and main character in the play, Antigone. Antigone. Yeah, written in by Sophocles around 441. Now, we're not saying that Antigonus was named after Antigone, but just rather that it kind of shows how common of a Greek name it was. Okay, Meredith, what do we normally say about the early lives of our subjects? That we don't know much about it. That's right. Not much is known, and it's true with Antigonus, too, but let me tell you something. Uh, Hold on. Billows is indicative of what good historical research can do, because he uses a lot of subtle details to stitch together a very plausible reflection of Antigonus' background. 
And if you'll indulge, I think you're really going to like this. It's one of the surprises I've been holding on for you this episode. I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to give you the chronological thing, but before I do that, I'm going to give you a whole breakdown of all the juicy stuff about this guy's personality. Okay. Yeah. So, but I will start a little bit of chronology just with his birth. We do know, for instance, he was born in 382. And we know this because we can count backwards from the date of his death, which was 301. And the fact that, you know, the sources say he was 81 when he died. But, yeah. Yeah, so he's an older dude, man, and he was kicking to the very end. Much like Polypericon then, Antigonus was an exact contemporary of Philip II. Which means, once again, we're dealing with the old guard. Much like we see today, the upper echelons of the Hellenistic world were being dominated by a bunch of old dudes. But again, Antigonus is the turning point in our podcast because he's not the last, but he's one of the last instances when we're going to be dealing with one of these older dudes taking over the empire. Speaking of people named Philip, we do know, confusingly of course, that Antigonus' father was also named Philip. But this is not King Philip II. This is just another dude named Philip. Antigonus also had two brothers, one named Demetrius and another named Polymaios and a third unknown sibling. Hmm. As for his family's background, we know next to nothing. There is a single but unreliable reference to Antigonus's dad being a laborer, which would suggest maybe something lower class, but... On the other hand, Billows argues convincingly that Antigonus was probably from a noble Macedonian family. One of the most convincing pieces of evidence for this is the fact that Antigonus, along with one of his brothers, had served a long time in the Macedonian court and in the Macedonian army. He likely served under previous Macedonian kings, Philip II, his own brother, Perdiccas III, and of course, Philip's son, Alexander the Great. But Billows argues that Antigonus's long service in the Macedonian court likely meant he was more influenced by Philip than by Alexander. Just kind of an important detail when we consider Antigonus's later career. And while in service to Philip, Antigonus would have bumped elbows and established friendships with other prominent figures in the Macedonian court, such as Antipater and Eumenes, two people who would play a big role in his later life. Nevertheless... Antigonus is specifically mentioned, for instance, as a hetairos, a companion of Alexander, a position that indicated a high status in Macedonian society, therefore suggesting that Antigonus remained in high circles even after Philip died. As a noble, then, Antigonus had the wealth and social privilege that gave him access to a good education, especially in the fancy-schmancy newfangled ideas coming up from Greece. For example, we do know that Antigonus could spout lines from the Greek playwright Euripides on a whim. As a couple of examples, while he was trying to convince his son Demetrius, more on that later, to marry a very prominent but older woman, he paraphrased a line from Euripides' play, The Phoenician Women. And essentially the line was something like, sometimes you have to bite the bullet for the greater good, or sometimes you got to do things you don't want to do, which is kind of sad when your dad's telling you to about a woman he wants you to marry. Another time, he called out a speaker for memorizing a speech, basically implying that it was like insincere or fake, maybe a plagiarism thing. When he asked a question and the speaker blanked, Antigonus says, What's your answer? And then he quoted from Euripides's another of Euripides's play. You ready for this? Iphigenia mm-hmm. among the Taurians. Ugh, that's a hard one. And the line was, 
is that what's on the written page? And I know these jokes are not landing, but basically he was just calling him out. I'm like, what do you got? You got an answer? Or is it just something that you haven't memorized yet? I know. Well, I see myself kind of in the person giving the speech (laughs) because I practice and practice every time I want to speak to somebody about something that's maybe a bit more serious. And I get through the first line of what I have planned. And then I usually cry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like one of those things where like you have thought and thought and thought about all the things you need to say. You even thought about even possible things. I could say this. I could say that. But they mm-hmm. always hit you with the one you didn't think I about. I have plan A, plan B, plan C. And here comes plan purple. Um, <sighs> plan oops, tears plan, from my eyes. Plan stupid. But then, of course, like you're, you're, you're like you're driving home and you're like, I should have said God this. God yeah, dang yeah, it. Yeah. I should have said this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of my um, junior, senior year of college have many of those moments that I still think about to this day. Sounds like you're carrying some trauma, Meredith. I am. Okay. (laughs) So the takeaway from this is that Antigonus was not just a soldier. He was cultured and competent and sharp. He knew his Mm -hmm. stuff. But now here, you ready to warm your heart? Sure. Going to give your heart some asbestos. Here we go. Okay. Beyond being an important person in Macedonian society, Bellows also argues that Antigonus was a family man. For one thing... At some point in the 340s, which would be when Antigonus was also in his 40s, he may have met and married his dear wife, Stratonike. Now, how many wives did Philip have? Seven or eight? Yeah. How many wives did Alexander get? Like two, three, yeah. Mm, Three, officially? Oh, yeah, 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 because Barcina might not be real. All right, so we've, and, you know, we've seen people womanize. Perdiccas was doing some wife jumping, you know, in his career and stuff like that. Not Antigonus. He apparently remained married to Stratonike for his entire life. And, as far as we can tell, he never had an affair with another woman, although there's a later rumor I'll get to. And he definitely (laughs) never married anybody else. Aww. Yeah. So sweet. And I know, it's like we're setting the bar pretty low here. But, so low. Right. It's just like, how do you know he loved his wife? Well, he didn't cheat on her. <laughs> <laughs> the significance here, as we've seen in a lot of our previous episodes, is a lot of Alexander's generals married multiple times or had mistresses, but not Antigonus. Second. Good boy. He promoted family members in his circles, governments, and armies, which I know sounds like nepotism now and we kind of recognize as a bad thing. But I think the point here is that he didn't forget about people close to him or kill them like other people we know from Macedon. (laughs) Yeah. For instance, he promoted a lot of his nephews, his half-brother, some guy named Marcius who doesn't matter, and, of course, his sons. Were you about to say something? No. Okay, fine. Third, speaking of children, Antigonus was apparently an attentive father. He had two sons. All right, settle in. This is going to get a little confusing, but I'm just going to barrel through it. Or rather, I'm going to hit it head on. He had two sons. Okay. Yeah. The oldest son was a boy named Demetrius. Okay. Which was named after his brother. And the younger son was named Philip, which was named after his dad. Now, I know you're confused, but if the names Demetrius and Philip sound familiar, it's because, yes, they're also the names of Antigas's brother and his father, respectively, and we've already had King Philip. And mm-hmm. let that be the first warning. We are getting to the point in our history and therefore in our podcast where a lot of the names are going to start alternating or just being used over and over. I mean, even 
to like to that point, even at this point, halfway through our first season, we've actually heard most of the poss- all the possible names that we're going to encounter over the course of the next three seasons. We've only got a few new names that we haven't already heard, you know, coming up. So all that is to say, I know this can get confusing. Just bear with us. The most important thing for you to know now is that Antigonus had two sons, Demetrius and Philippos. And you definitely, of those two, want to remember Demetrius's name. Okay, because Philip's a letdown. We'll see. Okay. Fourth, uh, Antigonus really wanted to keep his family safe. We know this from one reference where, at one point, he and his whole family were traveling by sea, and they hit a big storm, which seems to have scared the bejesus out of Antigonus, because he reportedly turned to his sons and made them promise right then and there never to expose themselves to danger when they were traveling with their families. Like he just did. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Okay. Moving on to his parenting style. According to Billows, Antigonus raised Philippos... Uh, with, quote, care and strictness, which I take to be more of a reference to a hands-on approach, not like a draconian, tyrannical thing. Uh, And we'll find out later that Philippos was apparently the good kid among the two. For Demetrius, however, there was a, quote, genuine devotion between him and Antigonus, or rather a clear and undeniable bond between the two of them. As one example, there is a famous story in Plutarch's biography of Demetrius... Antigonus was talking with some ambassadors one day, presumably from one of the other successors like Cassander or Ptolemy, when, according to Plutarch, quote, Demetrius came home from hunting. He went up to his father and kissed him, and then sat down by his side just as he was, javelins in hand. The implication, rather, is that Antigonus trusted his son. And how do we know that, Meredith? Because he let him bring a weapon in the house? Exactly. And that oh, kind of shows... Well, that's a sad state of society. Yeah. So again, setting the bar pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, how do you trust my son? I let him walk in with a javelin and trusted that he wouldn't immediately murk me. But again, all jokes aside, that is that is exactly what was notable about it. And that's exactly what Antigonus said to those ambassadors. This trust that he clearly felt towards his son. And he told the ambassadors to go back to their bosses and to tell them that the trust that Antigonus and Demetrius felt towards each other was proof of the strength of the kingdom and their power. Kind of adorable, right? Yeah. But Antigonus was also kind of soft on Demetrius. For you see, Demetrius liked to party. And even though, according to Billows, Antigonus himself disapproved of indulgence in wine, women in song, he was tolerant of Demetrius's weaknesses for these pursuits. In fact, it is two examples of this leniency where we learn that Antigonus may be also credited with history's first recorded dad jokes. Now, the humor of some of these jokes gets lost in translation. I'll try to help decipher, but I might need your help, Meredith. So, the first example, Demetrius was apparently dating this girl named Lamia. And she had him wrapped around her finger. Seriously, the sources comment that she was in charge. Hashtag boss girl, hashtag feminism, hashtag, hashtag. So this one time, when Demetrius came in and gave his dad a hug and kiss, Antigonus busted out laughing and said, You seem to be kissing Lamia. So this is uh, one of the classic aspects of a dad joke in that there's nothing objectively funny about that. Yeah, no, Uh, I was like, what is... Yeah, there's no punchline, yeah. But I think the only thing that makes it funny is the mental image of him embarrassing his son. 
Okay. But I guess also that's all. That's kind of a little creepy. Can, is there? You can, can you think of a modern day version? I don't know. I'm more creeped out that they keep kissing each other each time they see each other. That's because you don't have love in your heart. Um, I don't. Because <laughs> for the second example, it's got layers. So I'm gonna give, okay. I'm gonna give you the conventional tra- translation. Then we're just gonna break it down. Okay. This is also a lesson and reminder that a the ancient world was a funny place, and b some of these old school modern translators tried to cover up the salacious stuff. But not to worry, my penchant for toilet humor is here to save the day. On this occasion, Demetrius hadn't shown up for work for several days, uh, but had essentially called in sick. And when Antigonus inquired, Demetrius replied that he had the flux. Oh. Yeah. To this, I know what that is. Okay, we're going to get to that. Uh, to this, Antigonus replied, So I heard, but was the river from Thassos or Chios? <laughs> Oh, I know what he means. Woo! Got a little dizzy. But seriously, for you see, Meredith, Thassos and Chios were islands famous for their wine. So essentially, this might be the equivalent of saying, of me saying to you, hey, babe, I'm sick. I caught something. And you saying, oh, yeah, did you get it from Jack Daniels or Jose Cuerva? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, let's go on then to translation. So, Meredith, you're a history person, a wordsmith a reader of bookings with flappy page scribblings. So you've encountered the word flux before, it seems. What does it usually imply or entail? You threw up. Oh, we think so. Okay. Um, actually, dysentery, or to a lesser degree, diarrhea. And indeed, the Greek word that the translator I'm using, that of Bernadotte Perrin in 1920, translated as translated the word flux as freuma, and it can be translated as, more accurately, can also be translated more accurately as that which flows, a current, a stream, an eruption of lava, a flood of men, and that which is always flowing or changing. In a medical sense also, a humor or discharge from the body. So it seems that Demetrius actually said something like this. Hey dad, I've got poopies. (laughs) When Demetrius called in sick another time, or maybe the same time, Antigonus went to his tent to check on his son. But just as he was about to enter, he was surprised to meet at the door a beautiful girl who was leaving the tent at the same time. Nevertheless, Antigonus said nothing, but went and sat down by his son and took Demetrius's hand, apparently checking his pulse. Demetrius reassured his dad that the fever has left me now. And without skipping a beat, Antigonus said, yeah, I just saw her at the door. <laughs> there you go. All of this is to say that Antigonus is the kind of dad that would embarrass you in front of all your friends, even though he didn't mean any harm. But if he wasn't your dad, you'd probably be laughing your ass off. And indeed, Plutarch gives us more examples proving that Antigonus was well known for, in general, just for having a great sense of humor. A few selections will suffice, which I paraphrase for humor. While on campaign, his, once his younger son, Philippos, wanted to stay in a house with three attractive sisters. In response, Antigonus called up his quartermaster and said, Will you please find my son some quarters that aren't so crowded? On another occasion, when a poet compared Antigonus to a god, Antigonus said, Well, the man who flushes my toilet knows I'm not a god. During another campaign, some soldiers were complaining about Antigonus because he had forced his army to make camp in a very inhospitable area during the winter. What they didn't know, however, was that Antigonus was in a nearby tent and can hear every word they were saying. But instead of punishing them, Antigonus just stuck his head out of the tent and said something to the effect of, go complain somewhere else where I can't hear you. 
I kind of take that to be the equivalent of, boy, you better get the hell out of here. He even <laughs> he even joked about his missing eye. We haven't mentioned how it happened yet, but he's called Antigonus the One-Eyed for a reason. This one time, according to Plutarch, when someone sent a petition to Antigonus written in really big letters, he reportedly laughed and said, Even a blind man can read this. On another occasion, Plutarch says that when Antigonus was besieging a city, the citizens started laughing at his, quote, deformity, his missing eye. In response, Antigonus just laughed and simply said something like, Oh dear, I thought my face was handsome. And that's funny, right? But the, um... Ancient world always finds a way to make it dark because after taking the city, Antigonus found the people that made fun of him and sold them into slavery. And then perhaps as a final dig, Antigonus said if those people ever laughed at his face again, he would have a conversation with their masters. It's kind of overkill. Um, I was about to say, there's there's the other side of the coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, fu- it was funny until it's like, sell those people into slavery. So this is important to note because Billow points out that Antigonus could also be rather sensitive about people making fun of him. Uh, So all of this was to say, sometimes he was witty and had a sense of humor. And this wasn't just in personal or individual reactions. Billows states that Antigonus knew the psychological effect his appearance and his personality had on people, and he used this to his advantage. To that end, Plutarch gives us a couple of examples of Antigonus boosting the morale of his army by riding up and down the battle lines, or while on march, giving them pompous speeches and making casual jokes and laughing with a booming voice that showed the firmness of his own spirit. Furthermore, according to Billows, Antigonus was full of energy and vigor, even in his later years, when he was in his 60s and 70s. He was also a big man, a big man, Blessed with bigness, as I always say. His son Demetrius, for instance, was also described as being of a heroic stature. And Antigonus was supposedly even bigger. From this, we can infer that Antigonus was probably well over six feet tall. Given the fact that most people in the ancient Mediterranean at this time were around 5'5", soaking wet. I mean, we saw that on our crossover episode with So You Think You Can Roll Persia. Alexander himself was probably around just five feet tall. So... This is notable, and don't worry, Serial, we're, we pass no judgment on the Short Kings. But Antigonus would indeed have been considered ginormous for his time. Hey, that's pretty giant still for today. Uh-huh. Beyond being tall, Antigonus was apparently a thick boy. A baked bean. <laughs> a baked bean! Hashtag hello, fellow young people. We don't have a lot of details, but Plutarch does state that in his old age... Antigonus's great size and weight made it difficult to go on campaign, which I take to mean that it probably wasn't easy for him to get on and off a horse. They had to, later in Henry VIII's life, uh, create a crane that could lift him and plop him down <laughs> oh, on his God. poor, 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 poor. I know, I feel bad for the horse. <laughs> yeah. You can see, like, he would just get, like, a, he would start getting correlations. Like, every time that crane comes out, he's like, oh, God. I'm gonna break my back. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break. Okay, nevertheless, he personally took part in battles, and he shared in the work and the hardships of his soldiers. 
He seems also to have genuinely cared about them. In one obscure story, Antigonus noticed that one of his bravest and fiercest soldiers had really pale skin and was very sick, so Antigonus personally ordered his physicians to do all they could to cure the soldier. And it worked. Guy got better. Strangely, however, Antigonus noticed that the soldier in question wasn't as brave and fierce as before, and when he asked him, the soldier said that now that he was healthy, life wasn't terrible anymore and he had a reason to live. So that kind of backfired. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, it was likely for the reason of his industriousness that Diodorus called Antigonus the most active or effective of all the Macedonian leaders at the time, and that he was outstanding in daring and intelligence. But the sources also note Antigonus as being arrogant, ruthless, and having a love of power which may have fueled a lot of his energy and drive. But according to Billows, many modern scholars have used these perspectives to portray Antigonus in a negative light, but says that such views are simplistic and don't take into account the complexity of Antigonus's character. He could be indeed be prideful and cruel, but that's no different than any of the other commanders and Greeks and his and kings in his life. He could also be merciful. In the end, according to Billows, the key to understanding Antigonus's character and personality are in his ambition and his intelligence. And so now we can turn to his early career. So we can gleam all these aspects of Antigonus's personality and background. Unfortunately, we've got next to nothing about his early career, similar to most of the subjects in our episodes. And yet, he does seem to pop up in our source material for the first time at a very pivotal part of his life. We've already mentioned it, Meredith. Um, but as you know, Antigonus comes to us with a nickname, Monophthalmos, which means... The one-eyed. The one-eyed. Well, it's at the loss of that actual eye that we first meet our big boy. This is around 340. Antigonus was serving in the army of King Philip II, who was at that time besieging the Greek city of Perinthus, which was roughly 62 miles away from the much more famous city of Byzantium, which later became Constantinople and modern-day Istanbul. Well, the siege of Perinthus didn't go too well for Philip, in that it failed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, the failure of this siege and the other one at Byzantium the following year in 339 were one of the few defeats in Philip's otherwise astonishing military career. Now, there's some confusion over the names of the people mentioned, but according to Plutarch, at some point during the siege of Perinthus, the citizens of the city made a surprise attack against the Macedonian lines. At some point during this attack, a catapult bolt struck Antigonus in the eye. Oh, God. But he refused to stop fighting, retreat, or even let someone take the bolt out of his eye until the Perinthians had been pushed back into the city. They just imagine that, this big hulking dude just swinging around with a giant arrow stuck in his eye. Okay, is that what a bolt is? It's basically just an arrow? Funny you should mention that, because I did some research on exactly what we're talking about here. I looked yeah. up the Greek words. The Greek text in Plutarch for what hit Antigonus was a... Katapeltikos belos, which was the bolt from a catapult. That's what the words mean. Now, the implication here, as you just asked, is that it was not an arrow. He got hit in the face with an artillery round. Some of these arrows would have been around... Yeah, it was hard to find, but I did manage to locate some estimates. From what I could see, the missile that hit Antigonus in the eye was between two to four feet in length. You remember that arrow that pierced Alex's lungs in India? I was just thinking about that, yeah. Yeah, that kind of scale. But this one hit him in, in the, the face. <laughs> in the See, eye. that seems 
for as much as I was amazed that Alexander could have survived his incident, this seems even more amazing. Yeah. Because it's like, that's in your face, and your eye is not that much of a shield to your brain. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, if it had probably hit him just with a little bit more force, or if it traveled maybe half an inch deeper, it probably would have killed him right there, right? I mean, we all saw what happened to uh, Oberyn Mar- Martell on Game of Thrones. Oh, God. Yeah. It's the, it's the one death I can't actually watch. But didn't his head, like, pop? I don't know. Because I got a thing it. about, I have a thing about eyes, so. <laughs> All right, so, um, what else was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, speaking of me getting a new full-time job like an adult, we had to do, uh, you know, being a Latin teacher, naturally, I had to take, or I had to go to a presentation on how to stop bleeding. <laughs> yeah. And I loved one of the guys in there because he he was that he's that dude that always asks all the questions. And usually you're kind of like rolling your eyes like, oh, man, stop asking questions. But he was just on it with the questions, man, because the guy said, you know, in in cases of impalement, if you come across someone who's been impaled by something, do not remove it. Do not pull it out. Right. And so our buddy in question here, he he raised his hand. He was like, well, what if it's in the eye? And indeed, Meredith, I got confirmation that day. And I even wrote it on my notes. When I've got all this stuff and everything, I have a little personal note that says, Antigonus, don't pull it out of your eye. <laughs> yeah. So apparently it is the case that he wasn't just being a tough guy. It was actually medically the best thing in his... It was the best choice at the time. It was the best choice of the time for him not to remove that arrow. Now, I I dare say modern physicians would probably say he should not have kept fighting. No, they'd probably say you need to move yourself to a safe space, let the adrenaline levels drop down. Maybe wash it out, ice it, take a Tylenol, I don't know. But Maybe. We need to give credit where the credit's due for all the wacky stuff they do in the ancient world. He had part of it right. Don't take this out. At least he didn't use the spoon of Diocles like Philip did. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Just scooping it up. All right. Well, spoons are for kings. So let's go on. Let's jump ahead six years. The next time we hear about Antigonus is six years later in 334, where he's named as... Do we not get any detail about the removal of the eye? Absolutely or is it none. just like... Okay. All right. Absolutely none. Man. That means... Technically speaking, it could have been in there for the rest of his life. It wasn't because we wouldn't be so lucky, but we can, that can be our headcanon. I would imagine, it you know, in now. the movies, you know, they see him like they'll just break it off so it doesn't get caught mm-hmm. on stuff. I could, like, mm-hmm. I would love to imagine him with one eye and then a stick coming out of his eye socket. <laughs> That's my Halloween this year. Do you have something to say, Meredith? Yes, Dustin, I want to say that we'll be right back after these messages. Thanks, Meredith. Meredith, you're an organ donor, right? Yeah. Well, that's good to hear, Meredith, because according to the Organ Donation and Transplantation Network, every donor can save eight lives and can enhance over 75 more. Well, that's nice. Yep. 42,000 transplants were performed in 2022, but only 6,500 were from living donors. And of these, the most common partial transplants involved the liver, lung, pancreas, intestine, and skin, with the kidneys being the only possible full transplant from a living donor. And your point is? Well, an often overlooked area of necessity are ocular donations. Although corneal transplants help restore sight to 84,000 people annually, Whole eye transplants are currently impossible, and that's where Antigonid Monophthalmology comes in. What do you want from me? 
<laughs> oh, Meredith, I'm not talking about that scene in Monty Python where they barge into your house and carve out an organ. <laughs> but I'm going to need one of those eyes. What? Well, Meredith, Antigone Monophthalmology combines the dire need for ocular donations with the miracle of organ redundancy in the human body. At Antigonid Monophthalmology, they take the extra vestigial eyes from healthy donors to help restore vision to thousands of people in need. You want me to donate one of my eyes? I mean, just one of them. You're not using them. Yes, I am! Both of them? Yes! Wow. It's pretty selfish, Meredith. Sadly, I expected that. And so did the experts at Antigonid Monophthalmology. Did you know that the corrective eyewear market is a giant scam? You mean glasses. That's right. A recent study by Vision Care revealed that the average cost of getting an eye exam, a pair of lenses, and a set of frames without insurance costs over $500. Now imagine cutting those costs in half. By donating an eye, you not only help those in need, but you also reduce your own eye health costs by 50%. Eye doctors don't charge per eye, Dustin. Well, I mean... Plus, I don't wear glasses. I wear contacts. I feel like you're just trying to find reasons to disagree with me on purpose. No, I just don't want to lose one of my eyes. Well, that's pretty self-centered, Meredith. And might I say, short-sighted. Well, what about you? You've got both your eyes. Well, where do you think we're going after this? No, we are not donating one of my eyes. No so way! So make an appointment to visit your local Antigoned Monophthalmology office today. Remember, don't be shy. Give up that eye. Dustin, I'm serious. We're not That's going Antigoned to- That's Antigoned Monophthalmology. Don't put up a fight. Give the gift of sight. What'd you say, Meredith? I said, now we're back from our messages and back to our regularly scheduled program. Thanks, Meredith. The next year time we hear about Antigonus is six years later in 334, where he's named as one of the commanders that crossed into Asia with Alexander. According to Arian, Antigonus was in command of 7,000 allied Greek infantry. There's some debate on this, but, Philos, but Billows argues that Antigonus would have been present at the subsequent Battle of Granicus in 334 against the Persians, since Arian specifically mentions the presence of the Greek allies at the battle there. Immediately after Granicus, Alexander dispatched some generals to mop up operations in Asia Minor. As part of this, we know from a single inscription that Antigonus was sent to the city of Prien in Ionia, which is west-central Asia Minor. Hey, Meredith, where's Asia? I don't know. You don't know where Asia Minor is? No. Yes, you do. It's the western coast of modern-day Turkey. I need you to have more confidence, Meredith, because you're right. <laughs> yeah, for the rest of 334, Billow says that Antigonus likely remained on campaign with Alex, continuing to act as a commander and advisor to the young king. In 333, however, this changed when Antigonus was appointed to be the satrap of Greater Phrygia. So Phrygia is, is in west-central Anatolia. And so to give you some perspective, we were just talking about Ionia. Well, Ionia is in Asia Minor, western coast of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Phrygia would then be around 208 miles, or for our European friends, 335 kilometers inland from Ionia. Billows is clear, however, this wasn't a demotion for Antigonus. 
Indeed, it was quite the big job because while Alexander went deeper and deeper into the Persian Empire, huge swaths of Anatolia were left unconquered, a job that was therefore left to Antigonus. Thus, while kind of getting the crap deal, this does speak to a great deal of trust and confidence that Alexander clearly had for Antigonus. On top of the job of consolidating Anatolia, Antigonus's uh, role was also to maintain and protect Alexander's supply lines and keep sending him reinforcements. Moving into the next few years, 333 to 332, this next part is particularly interesting to me because it highlights the complexity of ancient warfare. That is, it's not all grand set-piece battles. In November of 333, Alexander defeated the army of the Persian king Darius III at the Battle of Essos in southeast Anatolia, right near the border between modern-day Turkey and Syria. After the battle, while Darius was organizing another army in Mesopotamia, at the same time, the remnants of his previous army from Essos and the remaining Persian forces of Anatolia were coordinating a massive counterattack to retake Anatolia and cut off Alexander's army from Macedon. This could have been it for Alexander, if it worked. If. Because it did not work. Antigonus, though drastically outnumbered and outgunned, or should I say outmanned, I just want to quote Hamilton the correct way. He, it's both. Is it? Outgunned, outmanned. But do they say outnumbered, though? Yep. Okay. We are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. Aha. Well, he wasn't outplanned. Yes. Because he managed to repel the Persian counterattack in Anatolia over the course of three separate battles, all of which he won. Moving us into 330, as a result of these successes, and probably because other commanders were dying or being sent to reinforce Alex, by 330 Antigonus was given command over even more territory, to the point where he held about two-thirds of all the Macedonian territory in Asia Minor and Anatolia. Nice! And as I say in the phrase that I'm trying to coin and get on a t-shirt, TM, that's big kittens, man! <laughs> See, I, and yeah, it's the second time I've used that in one of our episodes. It's called branding, Meredith. Now, for the rest of Alexander's life, the dates get kind of uh, fuzzy. So, despite the importance of Antigonus's role in the early campaigns, Billows points out that the farther east Alexander progressed in his in his war, and the longer the war went, the less significant that Antigonus's position will have seemed comparatively. Furthermore, he was from an older generation. And while he was keeping things settled in Anatolia, the younger dudes like Hephaestion, Craterus, Perdiccas, and Ptolemy were making names for themselves. What about Eumenes? Well, you know, he's Greek, so no one cares. Oh, still. yeah. yeah. At, at this point, no one cares. I love him. I know, me too. Yeah. Nevertheless, Antigonus was in a strong position in 323 when Alexander the Great died. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to have to cut this, reorganize it. Did we mention Alexander the Great dies? No. That might surprise some people. Oh, no. We might have to do some episodes on that. Anyway, when Alexander the Great died in 323, Antigonus was in a very strong position. He had a huge satrapy in Asia Minor and Anatolia. He was one of the only other commanders, along with Antipater, who could claim to have his own independent victories in battle, not just while serving alongside and under Alex. Lastly, he was one of the last top commanders remaining from Philip's generation. I mean, Polyparacon, as we know, was a high-ranking officer at this time, but he wasn't a commander like Antigonus. So, 
Antigonus was in a very influential position when Alexander died. This brings us to the First War of the Diadochoi, which lasted from 323 to 320. It is at this point following Alex's death that we can speed things up in our story because we've largely covered a great deal of it uh, several times over the course of multiple episodes, and I don't want to bore our audience with the dry recitation of facts already known. In 323, Antigonus was not present at the partition of Babylon, as we know, where, after a brief but tumultuous disagreement and debate, Perdiccas was eventually placed in command of the empire as regent of the two kings, Alex's half-brother Arhidaeus, who became known as Philip III, and Alex's then-yet-to-be-born but eventual infant son named Alexander IV. Where was Antigonus, you say? Well, he was in his satrapies in Anatolia doing his damn job. <laughs> Nonetheless, you like that? Yeah. Being a responsible adult. Being an adult, the only one in the room. Nevertheless, in terms of the partition that specified satrapal assignments, Antigonus was confirmed in his command of the satrapies assigned to him by Alex before his death. Namely, Greater Phrygia, Pamphylia, Lycia, and Western Pisidia. These territories, as we noted above, comprised a huge swath of territory in Asia Minor and Anatolia. It's important to reiterate this as we move forward in our story. Well, as sad as Alex's passing may have been, life goes on and the business of empire had to continue. Among the first orders of business, Perdiccas assigned the satrapies of Paphlagonia, but mainly Cappadocia in north and central Anatolia, to our certified best boy, Eumenes! Um, because Alexander the Great, blessed be his name, had never conquered these regions, Perdiccas ordered Antigonus and another nearby Anatolian satrap, Leonatus, to assist Eumenes in subduing and securing his new satrapies. Even though Antigonus and uh, Eumenes had been friends in the past, Antigonus was not keen on A, following orders from Perdiccas, and B, helping a lowly Greek like Eumenes. Another example of old-fashioned ancient racism. Antigonus was a Macedonian, and he couldn't stand to have a Greek on equal terms with him. Leonidas, on the other hand, was an absolute idiot and bugged out to Greece, ostensibly to help Antipater in the Lamian War, but also to try and marry Alex's sister, Cleopatra. But unfortunately, he died in the first battle upon arriving in Greece. It's also possible, however, that Leonidas' shenanigans was actually the reason, or part of the reason, that Antigonus refused to help Eumenes since Antigonus may have felt that he could not or would not make an attempt on Cappadocia without reinforcements, because Leonidas took them all. In any case, 322, Purdy is pissed, and he doesn't forget this. Over the course of 322, now Perdiccas himself brings the royal army to help Eumenes conquer Cappadocia, which they succeed in doing brutally. Taking us to 322-321, Perdiccas summoned Antigonus to answer for the crime of disobedience. Remember also, Perdiccas is part of that old guard. He served with Philip, and he hadn't seen Perdiccas for ten years. He's not, allowed, he's not about to let this whippersnapper boss him around, so he also pieces out to join Antipater in Greece, where he immediately made an alliance with him and Crateros. Taking us into 321, Antigonus' act of defiance here was one of the first and most significant cracks in Perdiccas' authority and legitimacy as regent and commander over the empire. But currently, Perdiccas had bigger things to do. Like, for God's sakes, bury Alexander's freaking body. And yet in the meantime, we'll remember that Perdiccas was having medical... Mer medical? He's going to have some medical problems. He was having marital problems in the sense that he had too many options. Perdiccas had originally arranged to marry Antipater's daughter, Nicaea, 
But then Alexander's full sister, Cleopatra, popped up, and that sounded much more appealing to Perdiccas. We've seen how this plays out for him, so we won't rehash it here. The important thing to note in the case of Antigonus is that when he ran to join Antipater in Macedon, he immediately told him that Perdiccas was going to dump his daughter Nicaea and marry Cleopatra instead. Those two issues ended up being the direct causes of the first war of the Diadochoi. On the way to deliver Alexander's body to Macedon, the funeral train was hijacked by Ptolemy, diverted to Egypt. At almost the same time, the new alliance made its first move. Antipater, Craterus, and Antigonus crossed into Asia Minor, Anatolia. After due consideration, Perdiccas decided to deal with Ptolemy first and went down to Egypt. Well, we know what happened there. He tried to cross the Nile. Twice. He failed. Twice. His men got ate by crocs. And then he was once once <laughs> and then he was stabbed in his tent by his lieutenants once while sleeping. But we also know that that what was going on up north in Anatolia was much more interesting. After some initial cat and mouse games with Eumenes, the Antipater coalition split into a three pronged attack. Antipater took 10,000 troops and rushed south to chase after Perdiccas in Egypt. Craterus and Neoptolemus march straight towards Eumenes, where Eumenes absolutely demolished them. If I refer you to any episode, I will say you must check out our Eumenes episode for the awesome story on this. But especially pertinent to our story, the third part of the attack was that Antigonus was given a fleet and sailed to the island of Cyprus. Likely this was so that he could link up with Ptolemy in Egypt, but also secure the eastern Mediterranean coast and prevent Perdiccas from attempting any jump into Europe. Again, the end result was the same. Perdiccas dies, and Tipiters elected the new regent. What do? The vision of the empire was updated at the Treaty of Triparadesos in modern-day Lebanon. See the episode on, on Antipater for more on this. But the most important thing to note is that Antigonus was granted command of the Asian part of the empire, and tasked with putting down the remnants of the Perdican faction, namely Perdiccas's brother, Alketos, along with guy named Domikos, Atalos, Polymon, and Eumenes. And as we've seen... Son of a... Ah, and as we've already seen, the conflict between Eumenes and Antigonus would consume both of their lives for the next five years. Believe it or not, even at this early stage of the conflict, Antigonus was at a disadvantage, as he was outnumbered by the ex-Perdicans, which is surprising. Kind of goes to show you just how much of the Empire's resources that Perdiccas actually had at his command. Nevertheless, despite being outnumbered, Antigonus adopted an aggressive strategy. He defeated Eumenes at the Battle of Orkinia. You may remember he bribed Eumenes' cavalry commander, Apollonides. After this, he left behind a small army and kept Eumenes under siege in the city of Nora. Meanwhile, with the rest of his army, Antigonus marched against the remaining Perdicans, Alketas, Dokimos, Atalos, and Polemon, and defeated all of them at the Battle of Critopolis in southwestern Anatolia. Thus, in a single campaign over the course of one season, that is, within a year, Antigonus had completely defeated the remaining Perdicans, aside from Eumenes. Now it's 319, and something unexpected, but totally expected, happens. Antipater, the old man who wouldn't die. Now the, yeah, now the events following this were covered in great detail on our episode on Polypericon, but ever so briefly, Antipater passed on the regency of the kings in command of the empire, not to his own son, Cassander, as would have been expected, but to the sad dancing clown, 
and captain of mediocrity himself, Polly Paracon. And as we know, Cassander's not happy. And indeed, Cassander immediately goes to Anatolia and makes a new alliance with Ptolemy in Egypt and our big boy, Antigonus. It's important to note that in all appearance, this new alliance wasn't really concerned with changing the division of the empire, but rather to change the person on top. That is to get, yeah. rid, get rid of Polypericon, put Cassander in his place. That's going to be important for what comes later. And thus, with this act, this new alliance, the foundation was laid for the second war of the Diadochoi, which lasts from 318 to 315. With an even bigger war against Polypericon on the horizon, Antigonus had no desire to keep fighting his little buddy Eumenes, and so he offered him generous terms of peace. But Eumenes was stubborn. Antigonus would offer terms of surrender, and then Eumenes would make more demands. Antigonus would counter with another proposal, and then Eumenes would make even more demands. Clearly this wasn't going anywhere. Indeed, we can detect that Antigonus may not have even considered Eumenes much of a threat in the end, because he eventually just let him go. He lifted the siege of Nora and just forgot about it. Maybe he thought that Eumenes would be more conciliatory if he wasn't under threat at the time of negotiations. Regardless, Antigonus was no doubt surprised as what happened next. Far from receding into the night, Eumenes began to conscript new troops and soon received an official appointment from Polypericon in Olympias to the position of co-regent of the kings and commander of the empire. I'm pretty sure Antigonus was like... <sighs> <laughs> out of the office. Yeah. Taking us into 318 proper. Antigonus did not chase after Eumenes initially because this new second war of the Diadochoi had opened new areas of conflict in western Anatolia, especially along the coast of Asia Minor, which was right across from Greece and Macedon. First, Antigonus was happy to support his new ally Cassander and loaned him 4,000 troops to help him hold the port city of Athens, the Piraeus which Cassander had recently seized. Next, Antigonus seized four ships carrying around 600 talents of gold that were en route to Polypericon in Macedon. Now that's several hundred million dollars worth. Third, Antigonus was working to gain control of the Greek cities in Asia Minor. According to James Rom, Antigonus' experience as a freedom bringer from the Persians under Alexander seems to have made him more sensitive to each individual city's aspiration to self-determination. The thing to pay attention there is that pretty soon, Antigonus is going to start talking about the freedom of the Greeks. Nevertheless, there were some areas that resisted him. The satrap of Lydia, for instance, a guy named Clytos the White, not the guy who Alexander killed because that guy's already dead, just another guy named Clytos. Uh, he put up a good fight for a while against Antigonus. Um, for context, Lydia is the west-central region of Anatolia, not completely on the coast, but coast-adjacent. It was, however, an important region. The chief city in the area, for instance, was Sardis, which was one of the old three capitals from the Persian Empire. So, again, this is big kittens. Anyway, after dealing with Clytos and helping Cassander, Antigonus did return his attention to Eumenes, who by now had succeeded at raising a substantial military force and was taking control of Cilicia, southeastern Anatolia, Syria, and Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, in an effort to construct a fleet to help or link up with Polypericon. Well, he apparently succeeded in constructing some ships and promptly dispatched them to Macedon. We know this because, unfortunately for him, along the way they encountered Antigonus's naval forces at the island of Rhodes, and they immediately switched sides to join Antigonus. So much for that. By the end of 318, Ptolemy had now made his first move and brought a new ally against Polypericon into the mix. One of Alexander's former bodyguards, a hulking man named 
Seleucus, a very important person who later gets his own episode. Ooh. And if he wasn't yes. already listening, our dear friend Roberto at Czar Power just perked up. Well, and Umberto at you. So you think you can rule Is he Persia. a big fan of Seleucus too? Well, they're done with them. The no, I'm Seleucids. talking about Roberto. He's like, he's a Seleucus fanboy. All three of these men, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus, attacked Eumenes on multiple fronts in order to push him out of Syria and Phoenicia. Well, they weren't able to catch Eumenes or even defeat him because Eumenes was too smart for that and once again escaped. Not a perfect situation, but the coalition did succeed then in pushing Eumenes out of Phoenicia and Syria, pushing him deeper into the eastern portions of the empire. It takes us to 317. Early that year, after pushing Eumenes out, Antigonus consolidated his control over Cilicia and Syria, and then turned eastward into Mesopotamia, intending to put the squash on Eumenes. An important thing to note, however, was that Antigonus was now accompanied in his eastern campaign by Seleucus, which is an important detail that will become very important several years later. In the meantime, Eumenes had seized the important city of Susa, which where one of the big royal treasuries was held. Naturally, that's the first place Antigonus and Seleucus moved toward, but Eumenes was a cunning beaver and still had tricks up his sleeve. He knew better than to try and hold a city against Antigonus, where he could easily get trapped, so he abandoned Susa and had Antigonus Antigonus chase him into the countryside, where he was good at outmaneuvering him. Eumenes was smart, and it worked! Antigonus left Seleucus behind as the satrap of Babylon, with orders to recapture Susa, remember that. And he chased Eumenes south, catching up to him at the Copratos River. Eumenes was on the other side of the river, so what do you think Antigonus did? Crossed it. While trying to cross the river, Antigonus suffered a huge defeat after a surprise attack by Eumenes, losing around 6,000 troops. Maybe even 10,000, depending on the source you read. So as 316 to 315 rolls around, we have a bit of a stalemate between Antigonus and Eumenes. Antigonus was clearly the more formidable of the two. He had better resources. He had a bigger army. Definitely a more loyal army with trustworthy commanders. He was backed by powerful allies like Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. But he was on the offensive, which is always harder. Plus, Eumenes was slippery. Antigonus just couldn't get a hold of him. He couldn't get in the knockout blow. Eumenes, on the other hand, was the scrappy underdog. In many ways, he was the superior commander. He could think outside the box. Technically, he had all the resources of the Eastern Empire at his disposal. And it's always easier to be on the defensive. But he had problems with loyalty and legitimacy. His troops were flaky, and his generals were jealous. After the surprise victory at the Copratos River, for instance, Eumenes wanted to go on the offensive, but the rest of his eastern satraps didn't want to. And as we know, Eumenes' troops eventually will betray him. Final showdown between Antigonus and Eumenes ultimately took place in late 316 at the Battle of Gabiene, in the heart of the old Persian Empire, central Iran today. Eumenes' elite troops, the Silver Shield Pikemen, absolutely demolished Antigonus' infantry in this battle. But Antigonus' cavalry did much better and managed to capture Eumenes' baggage train. The best estimates are that Antigonus lost 4,000 troops, while Eumenes lost only 500. But then there's the issue with that baggage train, and this is what ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back. As we know, Eumenes' troops wanted their stuff back, so they betrayed Eumenes to, a to Antigonus. Now, Antigonus really respected Eumenes. Like we've said a few times, they used to be buddies. But Antigonus' soldiers and officers demanded that he kill Eumenes, even though Antigonus couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger, so to speak. So his solution was to starve Eumenes, which we couldn't figure out which one was preferable. So I don't know if I should say fortunately or unfortunately, but in any case, the starvation strategy was in the end circumvented by the fact that one of Antigonus's guards strangled Eumenes. Antigonus, nevertheless, gave uh, Eumenes a honorable funeral, which was attended by the entire army, cremated him, 
and then sent his ashes back to his mother, wife, and children in Cappadocia. Thus was the anticlimactic end of this chapter in Antigonus's life, but also the end of the Second War of the Diadochoi. But as always, the question was now, what do? As for us, the death of Eumenes brings us up to speed with nearly everything we've heard about Antigonus so far. So now we can start to zoom in again with more detail on what happens over the next 15 years, which is good because let me tell you, a lot is about to happen. We're getting close to a major, <laughs> major turning point in the history of the Hellenistic world, and thus, our dear podcast. But before that, let's look into the immediate aftermath coming from the Battle of Gabienne. Specifically, Meredith, I'm so happy to say, let's talk about the people that betrayed Eumenes, especially the Silver oh, the Shields. the Silver Shields. All of Eumenes' former army was, of course, absorbed into Antigonus's army. But Antigonus knows that the people that betrayed Eumenes can't be trusted. And indeed, according to Plutarch, Antigonus reportedly stated once that he loved men who offered to betray, but he hated men who actually betrayed. So his first order of business was to arrest the commander of the Silver Shields, one of the guys who actually killed Perdiccas several years earlier, and he threw him in a pit and burned him alive. Another of Eumenes' former commanders was thrown in prison. As for the Silver Shields themselves, Antigonus divided them up into smaller contingents and distributed them among various commanders. But for the most untrustworthy among them, he ordered their commanders to send them out on special patrol missions where they were oh, God. where they were killed off <laughs> bit by bit. What do you think of that, Meredith? Good. I think I remember even Very telling good. you during Eumenes' episode, like, those despicable silver shields, they're going to get it. Well, they'd basically become mercenaries there Very at the end, point. hadn't yes, they? They? Had. they were just fighting for the highest paymaster. Yeah. Um, another question was what Antigonus' reaction would be to the new situation in Macedon. He had, after all, supported Cassander's revolt against Polypericon. Well, by 316-315, that was pretty well done. According to the famous Hellenistic historian R.M. Arrington, if he, that is Antigonus, were prepared to accept Cassander as successor of Antipater in Europe, then the dualistic governmental structure envisioned by Antipater for the empire might still be restored. It was a big if. Remember, way back in 320, Antipater had originally appointed Antigonus as the supreme commander of the eastern or Asian part of the empire. At this point, baby Alex was still alive. He was just in prison vacation under Cassander's authority. We really don't know what Antigonus's position was on all this. Beyond all this, Antigonus's next move was generally to rearrange the eastern provinces, putting favored and trusted commanders in places of powerful positions and getting rid of potentially troublesome figures. And this will cause some problems for him very soon. By now, we're at early 315, and Antigonus was at the height of his power. With Eumenes' defeat, Antigonus was now in possession, or more accurately, in command, of all the eastern Asian territories of the empire, stretching as far as Asia Minor and Syria, all the way to India. He was the most powerful commander in the entire empire, and he did not hesitate to act like it, and assumed control of everything around him. As it turned out, this attitude ended up straining his relationship with former allies, Cassander and Ptolemy, and especially the hitherto minor character, Seleucus. We will recall, for instance, that a couple years earlier, Antigonus had dropped off Seleucus in his satrapy of Babylon with orders to recapture the city of Susa, which contained one of the royal treasuries, and Seleucus succeeded in that. Well... Fast forward a few years. During his tour of the empire, Antigonus made a stop in Babylon to check up on things. Now, the sources say that Seleucus gave Antigonus a lavish welcome, which Diodorus states was worthy of a king. Hang on to that detail. 
Nevertheless, Antigonus told Seleucus to produce the financial records of Babylon for review. Let me see them receipts, you know? And Seleucus took this as an insult, a complete undermining of his authority. And then he started thinking about all those other satraps that Antigonus had executed or imprisoned. Seleucus assumed that he was going to be next. He couldn't stand up to Seleucus directly. So instead, he opted to run back to Egypt, to Ptolemy's court where they immediately then started sending messages to Cassander and Macedon, informing him of the situation with Antigonus. So now we're at late 15, early 314, and as the year began, started out with a great deal of hostility between the former allies. Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus essentially thought that Antigonus was getting too big for his britches. He wasn't sharing. They had all shared some degree of the burden in the previous war against Polypericon and Eumenes, but Antigonus was hogging all the spoils. The straw that broke the camel's back, as we saw, was when Antigonus then tried to bully Seleucus in Babylon. So they all decided to push back against Antigonus and knock him down a peg or two. So they formed a new alliance against their old ally. I know it's dated and irrelevant now, but like that really, it really shows how old I am. But it reminds me of the old exhibit meme. Remember those? Like, hey, dog, we heard you like alliances, so we brought you an alliance to ally with your alliance. No, I don't remember that at all. I'm going to show you that later. I'll see if I can find it in a museum for you. Furthermore, possibly in an effort to create a counterbalance against Antigonus in the East, they brought in a new partner, yet another of Alexander's former generals and bodyguards, a guy we've heard about on occasion, Lysimachus. Now, not to worry, we'll talk about Lysimachus more, in his own episode. I thought he was dead. No. Who who do you think? Who he... was the person that they had asked both of them to go help Eumenes and Antigonus said no. Good question. That's then Leonatus. They... Okay. I'm not yeah. so far off. No, 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 no. And I'm glad you asked that, actually. same in my brain. No, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people will probably hear these names that they do sound alike. And they'll be like, haven't we heard from this guy? It's like, he died. Yeah, yeah. so Lysimachus is a whole different dude. Okay. We've heard, we've heard him a few times, but he's just kind of been hanging out in Thrace. Um, that had been his satrapy from all along, that barbaric region, you know, to northeast of Macedon. Uh, the region of Thrace was also, however, strategically important because it was the crossing point from Europe into Anatolia. So technically, like, uh, Byzantium is in Thrace, for instance. Hmm. Yeah, big kittens indeed. Okay. Same way you get a t-shirt, big kittens. Uh, it's an important strategic post, but not as glamorous as some of the other ones. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, the formation of this new alliance signals the fact that no sooner than the Second War of the Diadokoi ended, we are already well on the way to... The Third, Third War of the Diadokoi. Yeah. It's also important to note that Antigonus' situation is an indication of how quickly in this environment someone can go from being a trusted ally to a reviled enemy. Nevertheless, with Meredith's yawn, we now progress to the <laughs> Third War of the Diadokoi. I know you're not um, tired or disinterested. You've told me that for some reason, whenever we sit down, you just start yawning. I think I just find your voice so soothing. Yes, it I puts me a, into a sleepy the, state. The dulcet tones of my voice—it's like a lullaby of history. <laughs> you know what that just flashed me back to? What? When we were doing our um, Bucephalus dying bit, and you're like, "Go to sleep, my son." Go to sleep, my son. But daddy, <laughs> I'm not sleepy. Shush, child. Watch the Netflix. It's so I cold. <laughs> I'm so. <laughs> I'm so cold, daddy. Shh, my son. 
<laughs> That's dark, man. I want someone um, to have a pet again. You want someone to have a pet again? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh in our show, I'm like, there's a cat right behind <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, not ten, not ten feet away from me. And she does not care. No, she's just she is also lulled to sleep by your dulcet tones. <laughs> Whew, that was the tangent I needed. I'm back. That woke that woke you up a little bit. I'm up now. All right, sounds good. I can get you some of my smelling salts if you ever I, like it's nodding. Not, no, it's mm-hmm. okay. That'll wake you up in the morning, boy. Okay. Third War of the Diadokoi, lasting from 315 to 311. See, you already started yawning again. I can see it. No. So, no, I'm just teasing you. The New Alliance at least didn't jump straight into war. They did at least try diplomacy once, maybe. Thus, Antigonus received envoys from the New Alliance in 315, demanding that he cede the following. Cappadocia and Lycia to Cassander. Or take two. Hellespontine Phrygia to Lysimachus. Phoenicia and Syria to Ptolemy, Babylonia to Seleucus, and that he should share the treasury at Susa with all four of them. All of this, of course, was topped off with the threat of war if Antigonus did not comply. In response to this, Antigonus very calmly and quickly told them, get ready for war. So, in essence, Antigonus chose violence. <laughs> well, those are fairly unfair terms, wouldn't they you say? They are. They are, but like, I, what I love about it is they probably expected him to try to negotiate. Yeah, a counter claim. Yeah, they, no, but I will give you this. Exactly. He's probably just thinking three steps ahead. It was going to go this that? way anyway. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think Ptolemy was one of the smartest of all of them, because... He seems to have known from the start, no one's keeping this empire together. Get what you get, and then hunker down, you hairy dog. Hold it. And that's it for this week, because Antigonus is so big that we can't even contain him in one episode. So check back for our next episode, where we pick up on the astonishing life and times of Antigonus the One-Eyed. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating or a review. And if you'd like, you can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, Twitter, now X, at Alex Standard Pod, or you can email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. And this has been the Alexander Standard. <laughs>